Good morning, everybody. Let us pray. Father, I do thank you for this opportunity of speaking to your people this morning. I do pray, Lord, that uh, they will not hear my words, but they would hear your words. That I myself will hear your words, Lord. And that um, anything that I say may, that may not be of you will be forgotten. And Lord, those things which are of you, we do pray, as Tom has just said, that we will make them a part of our life, that we will be doers of your word. So help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Right, we're going to finish the book of Philippians, or the letter of the Philippians today. I'd like to recap what we did last month, actually, before we um, start on the new material. So open your Bibles at roundabout Philippians 3. And um, we looked at last time, uh, or we finished the the last section, we finished chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. That was where we um, terminated last time. We saw last time that um, Paul commended Timothy to the fellowship at Philippi as he was sending Timothy to them to encourage them in their faith and also to report back to Paul and the reason why Timothy was being sent because of course Paul was in prison at Rome at the time so he couldn't visit Philippi himself but he was concerned about their faith and he was concerned about some false teaching that was um, possibly creeping into the fellowship. Paul also praised Epaphroditus, uh, the Christian brother from the fellowship at Philippi, who was sent to Paul bearing financial support for his ministry and who was meant to stay with Paul and act as his servant. And you may remember that Epaphroditus became ill and almost lost his life, but he put his life on the line for the work of Christ. In chapter 3, 1 to 11, sorry, we did go on to this. Um, I said we finished at chapter 2, but we went into the beginning of chapter 3. In verses 1 to 11, you can look at those now, Paul addressed the problem of the Judaizers or false teachers who believed that circumcision was still a requirement in receiving God's gift of salvation. They did not accept that which Jesus had accomplished upon the cross together with faith and God's love and mercy, were the requisites of eternal life in Jesus Christ, God's Son. They didn't accept that. They they were looking to circumcise converts, if you like. They were trying to make um, proselytes out of the, the Gentiles before they accepted God in faith or Christ in faith. And we also saw in that section the necessity of a deep personal relationship with Jesus rather than just knowing about Jesus. And when we are in Christ and in the will of God, Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 3 that we may know the power of his resurrection in our lives. The final section that we did look at last time was verses 12 to 16 of chapter 3. And um, it reminds us that we are on a journey of faith working out our salvation. And Paul exhorts the Philippians to have the same mind as him 
in pressing toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's verse 14. Now the same mind in that verse could be a better translated the attitude. So Paul calls believers to have the attitude of pursuing the prize of Christ-likeness. That's what we're meant to be like, Christ, to get to grow more like Christ each day. Okay, so now we come on to the new material, and I'm going to take it um, passage by passage. So the first section we will read is Philippians 3.17 through to verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. So 3.17 to 4 verse 1, where Paul continues this theme of Christ-likeness and also having our citizenship in heaven and not on earth. So I'm reading from the New King James Version. Verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Now, I said right at the beginning of my talk on Philippians that this book um, or this letter contained lots of exhortations. So I just remind you again of that. And we have three more exhortations from Paul. And these exhortations, remember, are meant to strengthen our faith. They're to encourage us in our faith. They're to encourage us to be doers of the word of God. So the first is in verse 17. And we are to join in following Paul's example. And this refers to the Christ-likeness that I mentioned last time. The word used means fellow imitator. And you may remember, um, you don't need to look it up, but you may remember Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 11.1, which says, Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now, um, I used to think that this was arrogant, but I don't think it is now. There's nothing arrogant or egotistical in this exhortation. And you will remember that Paul has already called the Philippians to have the mind of Christ in the previous part of the letter. And especially in the well-known passage concerning the humility of Jesus in Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8. Now, he doesn't just talk about himself, he also draws attention to the others who are worthy patterns to follow. And he's possibly thinking both of Timothy and Epaphroditus, having commended them both in the previous passages. Now, most preachers today, and I include myself among these, can only say, do not follow my example, do not do as I do, but honestly can say, Listen to God's word and do as it says. Now, in verses 18 and 19, Paul warns the Philippians about the enemies of the cross of Christ. 
and he could be referring to several different groups of people. It may include the Judaizers referred to earlier in chapter 3. It probably includes false teachers of different kinds. However, if you remember the general joyful tone of the letter, it would suggest that there wouldn't be many of these false teachers, if any, within the fellowship, but plenty outside of the fellowship, threatening the spiritual health of the fellowship. Now, besides Judaizers, other groups of false teachers could include Gnostics and Libertines, and were people professing Christianity, but to Paul had obviously not been born again of God's spirit. And Paul's choice of the words in verse 19 may indicate, I'm not saying, won't say that it does, but may indicate the type of false teachers that he is thinking of. For example, whose God is their body could refer to both Judaizers and Gnostics. If you remember, the Judaizers were concerned with fleshly accomplishments and thought that the observance of dietary laws were also necessary for salvation. Gnostics, on the other hand, thought that matter was altogether evil and they needed only to be concerned with the spirit. In consequence, they taught that gluttony and adultery, for example, were of no importance, only affecting the body, but not the spirit. Another um, possibility, whose glory is in their shame, probably refers to the libertines who abused the grace of God, sinning freely in the mistaken belief that it would make no difference to the all-forgiving love of God. And the three groups, Judaizers, Gnostics and Libertines, were all preoccupied with earthly things above all else. The second exhortation in this passage is perhaps more of a reminder of where believers belong and in whom we trust, and is in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we should eagerly wait for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. The Greek verb used for eagerly wait conveys the idea of waiting patiently and with expectation, and alludes to the return of Jesus. And this statement contrasts the true believer's spiritual side of life with those putting their trust in earthly, physical and material things. And a reminder that an eager expectation of Jesus' return will help us and protect us from earthly, or help us against earthly temptations, protect us against earthly temptations if we um, live as if the Lord was going to return tomorrow or even this afternoon. Uh, Paul's use of the metaphor citizenship is particularly apt and meaningful to the Philippians who dwelt, of course, in a Roman colony. And Roman colonies were deemed to be part of Rome where quite often Roman magistrates governed, Roman justice was certainly administered, Roman dress was worn, Latin was spoken, and they were expected to be good, obedient citizens of Rome. On the other hand, believers are expected to be good, obedient citizens of heaven, where our city's builder and maker is God. 
Uh, moving on, in a sense, verse 21 reverts to Christ-likeness. For when the Lord returns, it says he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. At the resurrection and the rapture of the church, believers will have their bodies transformed so that they will conform to the character of Christ's resurrection body. And um, this will be part of the work to subdue all things to himself. Now, I've got a couple of quotes that support this. You may like to keep your finger in Philippians, but look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. This is about our transformation. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Now, if you get your fingers working again, turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 and we look at verses 15 to 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17. When you fill a talk with the quotes of Paul, you realise what an amazing theologian he was, what an amazing person he was. So, 1 Thessalonians 4.15 For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So a couple of those um, end times writings. Now returning to um, 4.1 of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 1. <coughs> the third exhortation is to stand fast in the Lord beloved. Paul, first of all, in that ver- verse expresses his joy and love for the brethren at Philippi and the crown that he refers to is the crown of the victorious athlete or the person fated at a banquet for a successful and fruitful life. The Philippian believers were proof that Paul's efforts in sharing the good news of Jesus were successful and with regards to the word standing fast this word was used in a military context as a soldier standing fast in the noise of battle with the enemy surging down upon him. Only when we are in Christ can we resist the temptations of the world and the wiles of the devil. Now we move on to our next passage. We're going to look at verses um, 2 to 7 of chapter 4. 2 to 7 of chapter 4. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who laboured with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. These six short verses cover unity, joy and prayer and contain another five exhortations for the believers at Philippi and may I say for the believers down the ages. So let's start this by looking at the people mentioned in this passage. We have Euodia, Syntyche, Clement and an unnamed true companion. Nothing is known about the first three characters and they appear only here, nowhere else in the scriptures. Because of Paul's words who laboured with me in the gospel, it is reasonable to suppose that they were among the first group of believers along with Lydia and those who used to meet by the river when the church was founded by Paul. It's not certain, uh, you can read about that of course in Acts 16, the foundation of the church of Philippi. It's not certain who is the true companion from verse 3. The Greek word apparently means yoke fellow and can also be a proper name. And um, I found three different spellings, so presumably three different pronunciations at least in commentaries that I've looked at. But the name is Sisygus or something like that. In which case this is again another person who only features in Philippians. But some conjecture that the true companion is in fact Epaphroditus, who probably carried Paul's letter back to Philippi. We also know very little about Epaphroditus, so the main point may be that all these people are in the book of life. Verse 3. Now I've just got some words um, to read you. Um, Do you remember the words of the disciples and Jesus after he had sent out the 70 to proclaim the gospel. Well, I thought it appropriate to read them here. uh, The version we're going to look at is Luke 10, verses 17 to 20. Are our names written in heaven? Are our names in the book of life? Luke 10, verse 17 then, beginning at verse 17. Luke 10. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying... Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, returning then to Philippians um, and Euodia and Syntyche, their dispute, along with the issue of false teachers, is another problem which affects the unity of the fellowship and, if not dealt with, will destroy the integrity of its testimony. Paul therefore implores them to be of the same mind. And turning now to the exhortations, we can pick up from this dispute that we should help our fellow workers, especially when we know disputes between believers may be in danger of bringing bad repute to the whole, fe- to the whole fellowship and therefore dishonouring the Lord. Moving on, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Verse 4. 
show gentleness to all, verse 5. Note, not just believers, but all people. Show gentleness to all. Be anxious for nothing, verse 6. Make your request known to God by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, also verse 6. Paul's statement in verse 5, the Lord is at hand, could be another reference to Jesus' second coming. However, the meaning can be near in space or time. And it's useful to remember that we're only a prayer away from the Lord Jesus. James wrote in his letter, chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, finally, in this Philippian passage, back to Philippians, when we turn from anxiety to prayer and thanksgiving, God will give us his own peace. We are already at peace with God through justification by faith in Jesus. But this peace goes beyond our human comprehension and guards our hearts and minds from things such as anxiety, doubt, fear and distress. Now we come to our next short passage, just two verses here, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4. You may recall that um, I mentioned these in my introduction. Mind you, that's nearly six months ago now. My introduction and the overview of the letter to the Philippians. I said that the epistle was sometimes referred to as the epistle of joy and sometimes as the epistle of excellent things. And it's probably these verses which contribute to the name of the epistle of excellent things. So we read verses 8 and 9, chapter 4. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, The things you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now again we have two exhortations from here. We are to meditate on all these virtuous and praiseworthy things that Paul mentions. And we have to remember that um, the uh, meaning of meditate is not just to think about these things, but to put them into practice, to make them a part of our lives. We are to do the things which we have learned and received from and heard and know that Paul did as an apostle of Jesus Christ. You could say that he was repeating himself from from chapter 3, verse 17. We are to follow his example, and yet as he himself followed the example of Jesus. So again, the qualities we should meditate upon, just expand on a few of these things. Truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. In Psalm 119, which talks all about God's word, verse 151 says, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Noble means worthy of respect, reverence and awe. David says in Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord the glory and strength. 
Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. There are, um, however, earthly beings to whom we should give respect. Our parents are one group of people, aren't they? But hopefully we can recognise who they are and pray for them regularly. Just denotes righteous, a state of being right. In the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, Moses describes the Lord thus, He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. It reminds you of a song, doesn't it? Pure emphasises moral purity, purity, sorry, together with lovely, which means pleasing or amiable, are both qualities which can display in our lives when we are in Christ and walking in his spirit. Good report calls for high standards in kindness, courtesy and respect for others, which Paul has already mentioned previously in this letter, Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4, in slightly different words. And in verse 9, Paul asserts that when we do these things, the God of peace will be with us. Now we come to the uh, penultimate passage of Paul's letter and I'm not going to talk about the final passage. It is only a, a greeting and a blessing to the fellowship. So I'm omitting that. So this is our final passage and um, we turn our attention and see what we can learn from verses 10 to 20 of chapter 4. So chapter 4, 10 to 20. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory for ever and ever. Amen. So as Paul concludes his letter, he expresses his joy over the Philippians' love and care for him and the generous gifts that they have given him to help his ministry. Primarily, he is not concerned with their gifts as such, but rather in God's grace being displayed among them as they learned to give sacrificially. 
So much so that Paul uses Old Testament terminology in verse 18 to describe their giving. A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Obviously a gift offered with the correct attitude. The reason why Paul was not concerned with their gifts per se was because in verses 11 and 12, he effectively says he has learned to be content in all circumstances. For example, whether he was hungry or whether he was full. He explains further that this is nothing to do with being either stoic or self-sufficient, but writes in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's his secret. Paul is totally dependent on God and trusts that God will provide. In verse 17, Paul tells the Philippians directly that he did not seek their gift, but that the gifts they gave were in effect storing up treasure in heaven for their account. Now, another slight deviation here. Um, You might like to quickly look at Luke Chapter 6, verse 38. Just look at some words of Jesus. Luke 6, 38. One of those verses that it's useful to memorise, really. So Jesus says about giving, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put in your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you and Paul seems to um, confirm that statement um, in verse 19 he says going back to Philippians and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus now it's possible that the Philippians um, thinking in the context here had given so liberally that they left themselves in some need. Those who share generously with others, especially to advance the gospel and the work of the Lord, will find their needs met from the heavenly riches of Christ. Now, this is not to be taken in material or financial sense, but he who gives will become richer, for his own gift opens up to him the many diverse gifts of God. So if we are liberal and generous givers, we can expect blessings, probably spiritual blessings, from the Father, from the Lord Jesus. And Paul ends this passage with praise to God, verse 20. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So to conclude or summarise what um, we learn from that last passage... Um, we can be content with everything we have and our present circumstances. Remember that every good gift comes from God. He knows our needs and he will provide. Claim the promise, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Remember, we've got to be in God's will, of course, but we would see our needs met if we are in the will of God. Be generous in our giving of time, talents and money. Remember that God will supply all our needs, not our wants, but all our needs, according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus.
And I finish with Paul's last words. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gift of Jesus, most of all. We thank you that if we put our faith and trust in him, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's word, your words, Lord, to us. May we be obedient to those words, Lord. May we be obedient heavenly citizens here on earth, looking for the return of the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we may be your obedient servants and bring glory to your name. We ask this in his precious name and we thank you for his Holy Spirit who enables us to do everything, everything in Christ. Amen.